Good morning, everyone, and thanks so much for the worship. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Dan, and if we have met, you can still call me Dan. Yeah, sometimes the old ones are the best. We are going to talk about Ecclesiastes today, which is a book right in the middle of the Bible. And if this is your first time checking us out and you haven't got a clue what Ecclesiastes is, that is okay. I will bring you up to speed. Uh, this is actually part 11. We've got two more parts to go. But first, a bit of a, a picture. Ecclesiastes is a little bit like this. Um, my wife was recently on a plane and she was uh, flying above the clouds and she began to see the sunset. And it was beautiful, it was spread across the sky, but in the aeroplane window, she couldn't actually see the sun. And Ecclesiastes is a little bit like that. It's got some beautiful wisdom for us, but it was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. And so a little bit of what I'm gonna, or a lot of what I'm gonna do today is we're gonna talk about the wisdom in Ecclesiastes, and then we're gonna look at the sun. Jesus is also the sun, the son of God. And for those of us who maybe haven't seen the sun in a while, it's that big fiery ball and it's promising to come out soon. The author's basic goal in Ecclesiastes is to deconstruct all the ways that we find meaning and purpose in our lives that are outside of God. He has written about the paradox of life that it doesn't always deliver, that it can feel meaningless, that it can feel fleeting, like smoke or vapor, that the smoke's there and then it just dissipates into nothingness. We've been learning that time is unstoppable, that death is certain, that life is random, that life is actually really not in our control. We actually only have control over one thing, which is how we respond, how we kind of, what our attitude is in the present moment. But on the positive, we've learned that applying Ecclesiastes wisdom can help us and we've learned that ultimately our purpose is found when we consider wisdom personified and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We won't read all of today's verses in one go, because it's quite a lot, so I'm gonna do this uh, talk today in three parts, and we're gonna discover that there is a quiet wisdom that can save us from folly and help us in life in the city. So if you are here and have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 9.13, otherwise open your app, press those buttons, this is part one, and this is wisdom for the heart. And this affects the way we think and the way we approach life. So from verse 13, the author writes, I've observed that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it's significant to me. There was a small city with a few men in it, a great king came against it and surrounded it and built large siege works against it. Now a poor wise man was found in the city and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembers the poor man. 
And I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The calm words of the wise are heeded, more than the shouts of a ruler over fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise person's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart goes to the left. Even when a fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone that he's a fool. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post, for calmness puts great offense to rest. So we're gonna talk today a little bit about wisdom and folly. And we've talked lots about wisdom over the past few weeks, and we've defined wisdom as fearing God, not in a sense of being afraid, but in a sense of respecting God and honoring God and wanting to live a life that honors God. And folly is a word we don't often use. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means uh, foolishness or uh, kind of lacking good sense. But here, the writer of Ecclesiastes is putting it as an opposite to wisdom. So it has an ethical component. It could be considered wrongdoing. If wisdom is to fear God, then folly is to not fear God. It's probably to fear yourself or to follow yourself. And the writer describes wisdom as being straight and true and calm and quiet. You know, the calm words are easier to hear. Calmness puts great offense to rest. And contrasting that with folly, which is senseless and chaotic and noisy and obvious to those who see it, but not so obvious to the one doing it. It's said in verse 3 that his heart lacks sense. He shows everyone he's a fool. And usually no one is deliberately foolish. Like no one sets out on foolish behavior because it usually always makes sense in our own heads. And this is one of the humbling things is that actually our own folly is hard to recognize. And this is one of the things the writer is wanting us to understand, because he goes on to say that actually a little folly can ruin everything. We would all agree that much folly probably causes some issues, but he's making it, he's kind of exaggerating it to say that actually a little bit can cause major issues. He says in verse 18 that one sinner can destroy much good. In verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, he talks about the dead flies, how one little fly can make all of the perfume stink. I felt very brave putting on this white shirt today because I don't know about you, but whenever I wear a white shirt, it is a magnet for my food. So I haven't eaten breakfast this morning, or no, I have drunk coffee, but even as I was drinking coffee, it was partly with a fear that I'm gonna get that one stain, and that's all you're gonna see, that little bit of folly, and you won't see the rest of the shirt. I have genuinely spent business meetings trying to arrange my tie so that it covered the stain. And in England, at the moment, uh, I'm exaggerating 
only slightly, but the people in England do not trust their health minister. Well, they don't actually trust their health service at the moment because of a little bit of folly. The health minister was uh, caught kissing a woman who was not his wife and obviously breaking the 1.5 meter rule. Two small bits of folly, and it probably started even smaller. You know, we, we don't know how he got there. He was probably lonely or overworked, and he somehow rationalized this path. And the result of that little bit of folly is that his marriage is now ending, he's lost his job, and actually the whole health service is under question. A little bit of folly leads to much undermining of wisdom. And in Genesis 3, at the very beginning of the Bible, we see a similar picture, that when Adam and Eve uh, sinned by eating the apple, their hearts wanted something that God had said, this is the one thing you mustn't have. And they picked their own path. And kind of in that first sin, so everything became broken. And now everything needs restoration. And that means, too, that actually we're all born with folly in our hearts. We're all born wanting to go our own way and not God's way. But the writer goes on to say that wisdom is better than strength. And this is where our hope lies. The writer doesn't clearly tell us uh, who the king was or who the poor man was. We don't know if it was a historical event or he was just using it as an analogy. But it got me thinking about another man. Another man who used quiet wisdom against forceful evil. And he too was despised. And that's how Jesus is described in Isaiah 53. It says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter in utter silence. When he went to the cross on which he died, he didn't object to it. He allowed it to happen. And in doing so, he wins the ultimate war. He wins, he, you know, his quiet wisdom defeats this barbaric violence and strength of the cross, and he defeats it. Jesus came by the wisdom of God, yet so often he's despised. And often we can forget the wisdom of Jesus is the weapon of war, just like the poor wise man was forgotten. And part of my encouragement today, if you've forgotten who he was, if you've never investigated who he is, is to do that. And as you investigate Jesus' story, I'd encourage you, don't start with the question, do I believe this? But start with the question, is this true? And then investigate the evidence. And then put up all your counter evidence and see how they match. I am utterly convinced that it is true, that the evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection stacks up so much better than the counter-arguments. Jesus is the only one who can bring change in our hearts. He's the only one who can transform us from having folly in our hearts to having wisdom in our hearts. And the Bible describes that actually we are all born enemies of God. We're all at war with God in our hearts because we're all born wanting to go our own way rather than God's way. 
the first steps towards wisdom for city life and city living is to accept Jesus as the one who wants to win the war in our hearts and wants to win it with his wisdom and give us wisdom. So with wisdom for the heart of the core, we're gonna look at wisdom for the hands now. This is part two. And this affects the way we work and do life. So we are jumping into Ecclesiastes 5, no, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 5. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions. I've seen slaves on horses, but princes walking on the ground like slaves. The one who digs a pit may fall into it. The one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who quarries stone may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the ax is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. If the snake bites before it's charmed, then there's no advantage for the charmer. So these verses, they're talking about vocation, they're talking about appointments, they're talking about our positions of responsibility, the things that we put our hands to. Now yesterday, I put my hand to fixing bikes, to getting some lunch ready, to sorting some financial stuff out, Today I get to preach to you guys. He's, he's writing about all paid and unpaid work. And in the first couple of verses, five and seven, he's talking about how often the political order is turned upside down. How kings were appointed who shouldn't be. And we see that today. I think in the political sphere, we'll all have differing opinions on who should have been voted in and who was the better candidate. And I think even at work, perhaps you've seen someone promoted who actually you thought this candidate was better. And the point that he's beginning to make, the writer in Ecclesiastes, is that life is fraught with uncertainty. And that's where he goes on to talk about when you dig a pit, you may fall into it. When you break down a wall, there might be a snake there. It's unlikely in the Netherlands, but it might happen. And he's building a picture of this vapor of life, of this meaningless of meaninglessness, of how you can do something and it's just not going to achieve what you wanted it to do. That kind of chasing after the wind, the, the, the treadmill of life, the rat race. And because daily life is fraught with uncertainty, he concludes, therefore use wisdom. Folly is like having a blunt or a dull axe. It requires more strength. And I've tried to do this. I tried to take out a tree stump with an ax and it starts off fine when the ax is sharp. But as it gets blunter, actually the damage you do just begins to kind of crush and bruise and it becomes exhausting. The ax isn't as easy to control as it gets blunt and so you're more prone to injury as well. And this uh, proverb about the axe, I think is a picture of how when we follow God's leading, it can be so much more effective 
compared to when we try and force our own path and use our own strength. That when we follow God's path, there can be joy and there can be uh, peace when wisdom's applied. When we kind of try and force it ourselves, there can be strife, there can be stress. Bear Grylls, who's an adventurer and he's done some TV shows, he says, a blunt knife is the most dangerous kind of knife. And he's got, I think, I don't know if he's got this image in mind, but it is true. If you've ever tried to cut a tomato with a blunt knife, it just gets really messy. It's ineffective. And so often I think we live life that way, with a blunt knife. I was, I've talked to two friends this week, and both of them have been saying, one was saying I'm burnt out, the other was saying I'm near burnout. And the one who was saying I'm near burnout, he was painting this picture of how he's got a new job, he's been working at it for three months, and he's been striving to make an impression. He's been, it's the sales position, he's trying to make the sales, and he's just worn out. And it struck me that sometimes we live in that way. And I got to encourage him to, you know, take Jesus to work, to get his strength from Jesus. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but so often we do work with a blunt ax and it's tiring. I think we'd, if, if we think how tired were we a year ago or even two years ago, I think we're tireder today. We've been doing the normal things of life and then we've been trying to live through a pandemic and actually it's taken strength from us that maybe we haven't realized. And I think that it's like we're all kind of living with this blunt ax. It ends up with us trying to force things sometimes and that can end up with us damaging ourselves or damaging others. It can affect all areas of life. It can affect how we manage our finances. It can affect our relationships. I often, uh, it's a prayer, but I often feel like some of the, the, the ways I relate to my in, my, in my husbanding and in my parenting, I just wish I wasn't quite so rough. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a bit blunt, like I wish my words were a little more gentle and delicate and sharp like an ax. And a friend uh, shared some wisdom from his father this week. He said, work harder. No, he said, don't work harder, but work smarter. And I thought, yeah, that's working with a sharp axe. But how? How do we do it? And this is where we want to turn from the sunset of Ecclesiastes to the sun that is Jesus. That actually, we can invite him he invites us to partner with him in our work and in every area of life. That when, you know, when we're feeling blunt, when we're getting to the end of ourselves, even before then, we can turn to him. He is the unlimited one. And we do this in prayer, firstly. It's an act of, of dependence. It's an act of saying, okay, Jesus, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to handle this or move forward. Please, won't you help me? It's an act of partnership. And I've been reflecting on uh, my paid and my unpaid work and I've heard a number of people say, you know, I didn't know I could take Jesus to work with me. I didn't know he was interested in my work. And I wanna say Jesus is completely interested in your work. He's interested in you. 
He loves people. He made people. He made them in his image. He's interested in your colleagues, but he's also very much interested in the substance of what you do. Because I said at the beginning that the folly has made everything broken and part of what you're doing, whether you realized it or not, is restoring all things. That's part of Jesus' mission for us, that we serve society through our work. And so Jesus is interested in our work. So you can pray for success in your work. You can pray for what you do. My first job was uh, in a recruitment company and it was a, a large-ish office with maybe 30 people and it seemed to me like all of them were shouting because they were calling up uh, companies to say, we've got these great candidates for the jobs that you need and they were calling up candidates to say, we've got some great job opportunities for you. And it was the noisy, noisiest place. But in the midst of it was, well, he's now my friend, but he was my boss at the time, sitting there quietly. And it turned out that he was praying. He wasn't a shouter, but he would pray and he would seek Jesus' wisdom for who, which job, for which candidate. How do I put them together? And uh, most months, he was actually the most successful salesperson. He sought Jesus in his workplace. But we don't also, we don't want to seek him just for the what, for success, but we can. But we also want to seek him for the how. How do we do it? Because often, you might have found this, but when you pray for success, often Jesus seems to want to change your heart and the way you do stuff on the way. So pray for the how. I went uh, to a repair shop this week to collect something. And I was expecting to have an argument. Because I'd been in the first time, they'd quoted me a price. And then I went back to find out if it was ready. They said, no, it's not ready. But they said, oh, it's going to cost a third more. And I said, how can this be? You know, I've got the bit of paper. This, and, and we had this standoff. And it wasn't ready, so I left the shop. But I'd come back in, kind of bracing myself to... to I wanted justice to be done. I had this bit of paper that said I should pay this price. But I also wanted to be a good representative of Christ, because you know the shop owner may one day walk into this building, I'd love that. And so I was praying as I was approaching uh, the counter and saying, you know, Jesus, I want justice, but I want to be gracious too. And I, I handed over my ticket and uh, he said, oh yeah, it's ready, I'll go get it. And uh, he said, and this is what it'll cost. And it was the initial price. And at that point, I just felt all the fight in me disappear. And I just said, thank you very much. And uh, paid for it with my watch and left. And I just thought, God had sharpened the ax ahead of me. And uh, I was very grateful that I didn't have to fight with him for sure but prayer can change situations and the other thing the other way to sharpen your axe is uh, well God's word this book here is probably the most effective axe you can ever use the, the scripture dis describes it it describes itself as like a double edged sword Jesus uses 
the verses in this Bible, when he is tempted, he counteracts that temptation with scriptures. And in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, the word of God, this book, is living and active, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So this book can discern our hearts. Because actually, they're a bit confusing to us. And my encouragement is let God into the depth of your heart today. It will change the way that you work, the way that you do life, the way you do relationships. You know, with prayer and God's word, we can expect wisdom and success in what we do. On to part three, and this is wisdom for the mouth. This affects the way we talk. So chapter 10, verse 12. The words from the mouth of a wise person are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words from his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No one knows what will happen, and no one can tell anyone what will happen after him. The struggle of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. Woe to you, land, when your king is a youth and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, land, when your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in. Because of negligent hands, the house leaks. A feast is prepared for laughter, and wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. But actually, a better translation is that money is how to get those things, how to buy food and wine. Verse 20, do not curse the king even in your thoughts, and do not curse a rich person in your bedroom. For a bird of the sky may carry the message, and a winged creature may report the matter. So I'm pretty sure that last verse, verse 20, where it says, a bird of the sky may carry the message. That's where we, we get that uh, phrase, you, expression you might have heard, a little birdie told me something. More often today, it is known as Twitter. Same idea. I don't know if Twitter realized that it came from Ecclesiastes, but I've also noticed that when we talk face-to-face, -face, there is an etiquette. But on social media, we seem to lose that etiquette a little bit. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is wanting to help us with here is how to speak and what to say, how we can be wise in how we speak. Because as Christians, we have a high view of speech and its power. In Genesis 1, we hear, we read of God speaking and the world coming into being. He creates with his speech. We can read in John how Jesus is logos. That's the Greek word, but it means the word of God. He is the word. 
Our words can bring life because of Jesus, but they can also be destructive. As a parent or maybe in our memories of our parents, we can think of times where their words um, have encouraged us, or perhaps the opposite, sometimes they've discouraged us. And often these words stick with us for years. Jesus teaches us that our words flow from our hearts. Luke 6:45. out of the heart, our mouth speaks. So, Ecclesiastes encourages us in verse 12 to have gracious speech. And the picture here is of winning favor with others, having gracious speech, and it's in contrast to the self-destructive words of the fool, whose words start with folly, but they end with evil madness. So we wanna be gracious, we don't wanna be harsh. We can be direct, but we wanna be direct in love. We wanna be seeking to build people up and help things move forward, not to destroy and tear down. We also wanna be measured. We read that the fool's speech consumes him. So we, you know, the fool is speaking to cover his lack of knowledge. So he just keeps talking. So we don't wanna be the, the motor mouth or suffer from verbal diarrhea where your brain is disengaged and the mouth just keeps going. Jesus encourages us in the book of Matthew to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no, to be measured, to not say more than we need to. Some of us like to fill the gaps. When there's silence, we just like to fill the gaps. And I did this to not much effect when I was nervously courting my wife. I would try and drive her home, I'd get nervous and talk too much, She'd actually have the opposite happen. She'd get nervous and she wouldn't say anything. And it just wasn't going. It took us a good few trips to get comfortable. 18 years on, we can talk quite well together. You might have heard it said to you, I think it was my primary school teacher who said, Dan, you've got two ears and one mouth. Therefore, try and speak half as much as you listen. And even our internal dialogue can get unmeasured and chaotic. Our minds can shout at us that we've blown it, that we'll never make it, that we can't forgive that person. And we can be measured there. We can apply God's truth and goodness and have mercy over ourselves and our situations. We can simply pray, you know, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I'd encourage us, that we want our speech to be well-timed, to check that the timing is good. That's uh, what he was writing about in verses 16 and 17 where he talks about the kings feasting at the proper time. Now, I'm an external processor, so I often say things that I didn't know I was even thinking, and often the timing can be very bad. So I've had to learn simple things that you probably already know, but don't, start conversations about emotional topics late at night. They don't go well. Nor start them in passing, just when you're leaving the house. We all need to learn. I'm sure we can all prove on kind of reading the moment. You know, empathy is, uh, is part of being gentle, 
that Jesus encourages us to be. Understanding what others are going through will help and lead us to love them more deeply and be more gracious and measured and get the timing right. So we want to be wise in how we say it. We want to be wise in what we say. And this is about having integrity in our speech, kind of living life with one conversation, not being uh, double-faced or duplicitous, being one, being the same person and having, saying the same thing wherever we are. And that's what he's talking about in verse 20. Don't curse the king even in your thoughts because he might hear about it. And again, Jesus echoes these words when he's talking about avoiding hypocrisy. In Luke 12, 2, he says, there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in the ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. That's a little bit scary, but Jesus offers us a solution as well. In James, and we've quoted this probably the most often in this series on Ecclesiastes, but it is so good. James simply says, if you want wisdom, then you can ask for it. And that's our starting place. We start by receiving Jesus' gift of wisdom by asking for it today, and he will help us to live one conversation. So to conclude, Often people think that living the Christian life or being a Christian is, a, is about being good or doing good. You know, we've got to behave right. Or you think that being a Christian is about trying harder, that we've got to have the right intentions. Or it's about speaking right. But actually it starts with believing that Jesus is Lord that he can change our hearts and from that place of having a heart changed, so then our hands and our speech changes too. For quiet wisdom, for life in the city, it starts in the heart. We wanna beware of how our folly can be that even a little bit of it can undo the wisdom, but we can seek Jesus. He can change our heart, he can make us wise. We want to be wise in what we do. We want to keep our axes sharp through powerful, dependent prayer and through wielding the sword, which is the word of God. We want to be wise in what we say and in how we say it, and we can reach out to Jesus. We can ask him for his wisdom today. So when we seek change from the heart outwards, we can find ourselves being like that man who was under siege in the city. And Jesus can give us wisdom to bring liberty and freedom to the city. It's only Jesus who can do this. I wanna end with this last verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. It says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Can I pray for us? If you're in the room, won't you stand? We're gonna move to worship, but I wanna pray. Yeah, Jesus, we thank you that you have made yourself known 
in this amazing book, the Bible. I thank you that you love to come and change our hearts. And I pray that those listening this morning will, will have the courage to say, Jesus, won't you change my heart? And I pray for your wisdom to be imparted to them. I thank you that you're a good God, that you care, that you love to come to work with us, that you love to give us wisdom, that you love to, to sharpen our axe and give us success. Thank you that you love to partner with us in life. We worship you today, Jesus. Amen.